Bob Murphy Show, episode 205. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i'm going to be talking with matt mccaffrey go ahead and read his official bio. Matt McCaffrey is Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of Manchester. His research focuses on the social and economic role of entrepreneurship and the influence of institutions and entrepreneurial behavior. His published work covers topics such as entrepreneurial decision-making, judgment, strategy, and the history of economic thought. So what we're going to be talking about, I know Matt from Mises Institute days and I thought it'd be good to have him on, again, just to showcase some of the younger generation of Austro-Libertarians to inspire some of you. And uh, specifically, though, we talk about he's got a paper going through some past correspondence of Frank Fetter, who's a big uh, figure with relevance to the Austrian school. We'll talk about that and also in particular capital interest theory. So that's why it's something that I'm particularly interested in. But then also Matt's done some work on Chinese military history and the connection to entrepreneurship. And so that's obviously a very interesting topic. We get into that too. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Matt McCaffrey. Well, Matt, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. So I would have already read your official intro or bio for people, but just maybe to give them a a better sense of who you are. Can you just explain, because I like telling people or, or showing the, the up-and-coming Austro-Libertarians, you know, how do, how do younger people get into this? So can you just explain, you know, did you know you wanted to be an economist and then you discovered the Austrian school or was it that Murray Rothbard convinced you to do that for a career or how did that happen? Yeah, so in my case, I, I always had a couple of different interests, you know, when I was sort of going through high school and then undergrad and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, but I, I was interested in a couple of different things economics being one of them, another one being literature. For example, my undergraduate degrees in literature, not economics. Uh, I switched when I when I started going to graduate school. But I kind of had the econ bug since I had been in high school because um, I had a really great high school economics teacher. His name was Mark Luce, if he's listening. Um, and he was uh, mainly a follower of Milton Friedman for the most part. So he had a lot of free trade sympathies and sympathies with a lot of, you know, sort of broadly libertarian policies and that kind of thing. And it was in those classes that I really got the the bug for economics because we had lots of really great discussions and debates and he would sort of force us to take different sides in debates, even sides that we didn't agree with, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to help us practice and develop arguments and so on. Um, And that was just a a fantastic experience. And it was something that that really encouraged me to to look into economics even more. Um, But even at that time, I guess you could say I was a little bit more radical because uh, one of my good friends uh, I went to high school with who was in that class um, had already been reading a lot of the classics, you know, Bastiat and Hayek and so on. And, and he had actually already uh, decided to become an anarchist. So this was in high school. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, and so um, just, you know, basically it kind of rubbed off on me a little bit. And right. Uh, in the beginning, I started just being, you know, I just sort of started saying, oh, well, maybe I'm an anarchist too, um, just because I was following the lead of my my friend who was who was very mm-hmm. smart. But then the more we talked about it and the more we debated um, all these different positions and then later on when I went through college and so on, uh, the more I began to, to understand that the arguments are actually really good and, you know, in my view, the, the best and the most consistent arguments run in that direction. So... Um, as a result of that, I, I developed an interest in, in economics, and then, um, you know, through reading some of the classics, uh, I, I started to um, read, for instance, you know, Mises Org, 
more regularly. You know, this was still in the, the fairly early days of, of the website. Um, but that was another thing that really helped me, you know, sort of push me through. Mm-hmm. I will say, by the way, that um, my my good friend in high school who sort of made me an anarchist went on and became a Bob Murphy student at uh, Hillsdale College just a, a few years later uh, after uh, after we graduated high school. Um, oh, so, you okay. know, there's, mm-hmm. some, uh, there's some twists and turns in there. Um, but yeah, you know, um, I basically I just started reading economics more and more in my spare time, even as I was studying literature in college. And at one point I um, started going to some Mises conferences and eventually to a Mises university. And really just over the course of that week, uh, my, my first Mises University, I went from having basically no idea what I wanted to do with my life to not being able to consider any other possibility than being mm-hmm. an economist. So that was what got me started. And, you know, from then on, I went to, to graduate school and sort of, uh, yeah, ended up here eventually talking to you. Okay, great. So, yeah, and I should mention for people who haven't heard me say this, that, yeah, Mises University is like, amazing and it's you know even now i still look forward to it and it's uh tom woods and i joke that by the saturday barbecue at the end of the week it's we have post mises u depression because like we know it's ending and he's just kind of miserable for a day or two and it's so true um because it is just such a fantastic experience both socially in terms of getting to meet all kinds of interesting people uh, and have all kinds of, you know, interesting arguments long into the night. Um, and then just, you know, the the pure uh, academic side of it, uh, getting to listen to to some of these uh, people talk um, about their, their specialisms. Mm-hmm. For me, it was transformative. Yeah. And it's, it does, it's funny too, because it's like, oh yeah, how about, you know, during your summer break, kids, you know, who are in college, go down to Auburn, Alabama in the dead of summer, you know, that sounds fun, right? And it, but yeah, it's amazing. But even though on paper, it doesn't sound like it would be, it's even hard to get there. You got to fly into Atlanta typically and then take a two hour shuttle bus. So, yeah. Um, okay. Well, that, so you, what, were you a senior in high school when you, or, or sorry, a senior in college when you went to Mises U or was it earlier? Do you remember? I, it was a little earlier. I think I was a uh, uh, sophomore, I think. Um, or, or So at that point, you didn't know what you were going to do, but you still had time then once you decided to go into economics, then you applied to graduate programs and because you knew. That's right. That's right. Okay. And where did you end up going for grad school? Uh, I got my master's in economics from Auburn University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, I got my PhD from the University of Angers uh, in France, um, where I was working with Guido Holzman, who was my uh, PhD advisor. Okay. And did you, okay, right. Okay. Good. So um, I don't want, why don't we just take one second? Can you tell a little bit? Because I had Dave Howden on, he was talking about the program he went to. And so I just know for some American born undergrads, they might be worried about like, oh, doing a foreign program, like number one, is it scary? Because I'm going to another country if they, you know, if they don't have experience doing that. And then two, like in terms of my marketability, like, is that going to, you know, does that not look as good as US? So can you just speak a little bit to those kind of trade-offs or considerations if you went through those? Sure, sure. So there definitely are some trade-offs involved. And, you know, we could say other things equal having a PhD from a mid-level European university probably doesn't look as good on your CV as having a PhD from a mid-level U.S. university. Mm. Really, if you're looking, if you want to work at a U.S university. Right. So, you know, there, there are some, some challenges that you have to meet, but no, they're not insurmountable. Um, and really more so than where you get your PhD is more so that, um, what matters more than that is really how you use your time in graduate school and what your CV looks like by the time you're ready to graduate. Uh, do you publish uh, do you publish in respectable outlets and so on? Um, are you building a career for yourself? Do you have a research agenda that's genuinely interesting and that you know gives you the opportunity to you know to to do something new and exciting that's going to get people's attention and so on? So if you can signal those kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, it, where you got your PhD ends up mattering a lot less than it would, right? Mm-hmm. Though it definitely can be a handicap. Um, but it's it's one that you do have some control over. Right. And the other, you know, the the upside, of course, is that 
you're doing what you love and that's, that's why you went into it. You know, so in other words, it's, it's like as long as you can still get a job somewhere, then that's really the, you know, wouldn't you rather be working somewhere that doing what you want to do as opposed to pretending you're a neoclassical economist until you get tenure and then say, surprise. Right, exactly, exactly. That yeah, that old strategy of sort of keeping everything hidden until you're you're safe and protected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's basically correct. Is that presumably if you're going into this, you want to do it because you're passionate about it. It's something that you love. So do that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, don't feel like you need to sort of trap yourself. Um, in, uh, you know, into three to seven years of something that makes you utterly, utterly miserable. Um, because first of all, you won't make it. You're, you're, you know, you're going to lose steam and you're going to drop out. So, you know, don't, uh, don't do that to yourself. Um, but also, you know, when you finally do get there and you find a job, you know, that makes you comfortable and so on, you will be so much happier. Um, if you, uh, if you didn't, you know, subject yourself to, to something that just that, that made you miserable for so many years. Right. right. Um, and these tend to be actually basically the two paths that we see people um, go down um, when uh, um, when sort of mainstream econ really isn't for them. Uh, on the one hand, they burn out and they just drop out and they decide that it's, you know, you're going to go into business or, you know, do something else with their lives. Or they just sort of give in and become very standard, run-of-the-mill, mainstream economists. Mm-hmm. And neither of those options is, you know, particularly um, appealing to me, or I think for most people. So, um, you know, again, it's really about finding something that you know that that makes you happy um, as mm-hmm. you go through grad school. Great, and then and then you ended up at the University of Manchester. That's correct. Yes, that's where I've been for the past uh, seven years now. Okay. Now, can you? So, historically, that had a rep. That was like linked to like free trade and stuff. Right? Like, oh yeah, the Manchester School, and and you know, I know Mises kind of had a fond place in his heart for them. Even you know, if you might not have. A, so is that still there, or is that like old? Like, oh no, that's that's dead and gone, and now it's just regular. Sadly, the the economic work of the Manchester School is uh, is not uh, really talked about here anymore. Mm. Um, there's still a sort of cultural remnant of it in the city, and it's actually really lovely because you can walk through the city center of, of Manchester and stumble across. Uh, statues of Richard Cobden and John Bright. Oh, really? Okay. Mm. Yeah, and, and um, in fact, we the very first uh, week that uh, that my wife and I moved here, um, we were sort of exploring around the city, and we discovered in this little square next to where our apartment building was this enormous statue of Cobden, and we just sort of walked up to it and said, "Oh, I wonder, wonder who that." That statues of mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, and it turns out that you know it's one of the, the heroes of the free trade movement. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, a lot of that um, has uh, has gone away now. Um, and you know, uh, you know, people are much more interested in the fact that, for example, Marx lived in and wrote in Manchester for uh, for a few months at some point, and uh, and Engels as well. So now now they get statues here <laughs> alongside the, the 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 champions of liberalism and free trade. So that's a bit uh, that's a bit embarrassing, but uh, oh well. Oh well, okay, that's good. Um, all right, so why don't we switch then to uh, you sent me some of the things you've been re- working on. I think a lot of it's pretty interesting stuff here. So one of them was. This paper, obviously, folks, I'll link to this stuff. So it's bobmurphyshow.com slash 205. But this article in the Journal of Institutional Economics from 2019 called Pure Theory and Progressive Liberalism, Frank Fetter and the Austrian Economists. And so what can you just explain, like, how did this is like previously unpublished uh, correspondence? Is that what this is? That's right. Yeah, the majority of the source material is taken from unpublished correspondence and a few unpublished manuscripts as well. So that paper was really the first one in uh, what is becoming uh, a major research interest of mine, which is on Mm -hmm. the history of American economics, and in particular, the American Frank Albert Fetter, who is a name that might be familiar to some people um, because he is very often associated with the Austrian school, um, despite the fact that he was American and did not formally study under the Austrian mm-hmm. Austria. Fetter was essentially the leader of 
Menger's school in the United States, if you want to call it that. Um, Federer described himself as an American psychological economist, um, by which he essentially meant a uh, kind of American Austrian economists. Mm-hmm. Um, he and a number of other uh, economists of his generation had been really profoundly influenced by Menger and Bumbavik and Wieser, and had you know even engaged them in debates in the journals and so on. But they'd essentially adopted and tried to develop on their own the the system that that Menger had pioneered and that Bumbavik and Wieser had developed as well. So in a way, they're part of the broader Austrian tradition. And at the same time, there were kind of distinct American branch of that tradition um, that's sometimes called the American Psychological School. Yeah, that's what I was going to say to you, that I, I know I've seen people like other historians of economic thought would probably classify Fetter as a member of the American Psychological School and psychological like with a capital P. Um, yes, that's correct. Yes. And it's, and it, it's, it's true that w- why they would have embraced that label – So this would be like at the turn of the century, roughly. That's exactly right, yes. And so it's to distinguish, like to say, oh, modern subjective value theory, like it's value and price, you know, that stuff's in your mind, like the way we as economists are going to explain things is through people's mental and that's where psychological comes from. Exactly, that's right. So psychological is really a synonym for subjective in in Mm -hmm. a lot of these discussions. And, you know, in contrast to say external or objective factors that would influence prices, essentially. Right. I mean, that's what this comes down to. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the Americans, uh, following Wieser, actually, because I believe Wieser had used the word psychological himself sometimes, mm-hmm. picked up on that and and used that term and you usually used it interchangeably with subjective theory of value. Mm-hmm. But you're right. All they really meant was that we're, we're looking at people's preferences, um, which in a sense are, you know, psychological, are contained within Mm -hmm. heads. Uh, But they weren't, for example, um, you know, what we might call today behavioral economists or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's hard for people to understand the stress on that without knowing what the foil was, like the classical economist, like even Adam Smith's book is called The Wealth of Nations, Right. So he and they were focused or Ricardo, his models and things. It's like, oh, you got this much corn being harvested. Like it was a very hard, you know, technical, like this is how much stuff's getting produced and where does it end up going? Like you could just see everything and measure it as opposed to things being driven by subjective motivations or preferences. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And really, that was kind of the uphill battle that people like Fetter and a lot of his contemporaries, and of course, the Austrians in Austria, that was the battle that they were fighting was really against um, that, uh, that classical perspective on things. Mm-hmm. So one thing that jumped out at me, so the people who listen to this podcast regularly know, recently, I would went down the rabbit hole with Jeff Herbner on the pure time preference theory that Bumbavik obviously had a lot to do with then Frank Fetter. So real quick, folks, remember, so Bumbavik wrote this magisterial critique of existing interest theories as of, well, you know, that came out in what, 1884. And then he offered his own theory and that they had to do with present goods are more valuable than future goods. But then Bumbavik infamously had one of his ground, he had three different what he thought were independent reasons for why present goods are more valuable than future goods. And one of those grounds had to do with the superior technical productivity of roundabout processes. Frank Fetter then criticized Bumbavik and said he was a masterful logician in the first volume. He blew up the productivity theories, showed interest was about subjective valuation, present goods being more subjective than future goods. And then weirdly, Bumbavik relapses into that productivity fallacy. And so this was neat, Matt. You found, I'll just read this and then have you respond to it. And in the Austrian tradition, you know, Mises endorsed Fetter's critique of Bumbavik, and that's where the, what we now call the pure time preference theory came from. Fetter called his thing the capitalization theory um, of interest. So here's Bumbavik writing to Fetter, and it looks like in 1914, that's when Bumbavik died, right? Yes, I, the, that letter's okay. from just a- So he must have written this before he died. I'm pretty yes. sure I'm an expert on Bumbavik, so I, I can say that with confidence. <laughs> okay, so here's Bumbavik writing to Fetter, Your work is so penetrated by a truly scientific spirit that I always enjoy reading it, even if I cannot fully agree. In this case, too, some disagreement will remain. I cannot let go of the opinion that also the technological fact of the enhanced productivity of roundabout production 
is one of the determining forces of interest, and accordingly that if this technological fact did not exist, interest would still exist as a result of the other two causes that I acknowledged, albeit with far less intensity. And of course, the chain of causation is not as claimed in various productivity theories, but is rather brought about by a value increase of present goods. So as I said to you, Matt, when I read that, like, I was really happy because that's that's what I and my you know qualified defenses of Bambarek have been saying is that Bambarek didn't you know commit some crude like in other words he didn't make the same mistake in volume two of his work that he had made that he had criticized in volume one that so anyway I'll stop talking and let you just like how did you find that and were you like a kid in a candy store or how did that happen yeah no no it, it really was like that um, because uh, in this case in particular. Um, a lot of the really great correspondence that's contained in the Fetter archives, and there's hundreds and thousands of, uh, of pages of it, but a lot of the really great stuff is not cataloged accurately. Uh, so I knew that Bombavik and Fetter had had exchanges of letters. I knew that they had met in person, that they were mm -hmm. friendly terms and so on, like they went mountain climbing in Austria together and so on. Um, but uh, I didn't have in the cataloged archives, I didn't have any record of the correspondence. So I just assumed that it had been lost. Mm -hmm. Then in sort of an unmarked box, along with all kinds of other stuff, um, I was just sort of, you know, leafing through page after page after page, and your eyes start to glaze over after a while. Uh -huh. And then suddenly you, you pass over one thing and you see, you know, in a, a spidery scrawl, the handwritten name, Eugen von Bumbavirk, <laughs> and then that's and that gets your attention. You know that really wakes you up. Um, so it was it, it was amazing um, and to do it, and you know you feel like it, it's a, just a fantastic kind of detective work. To be honest, um, looking through these archival records and discovering these little gems, um, and you. Uh, so can, can I stop you for a second? So what's the, I I should have asked you this first. What's the where were you physically doing? Like you did you have to go somewhere to get these things, or this is like all on microfiche or something? Uh, well, in, in this case, the, the Federal Archives are at Indiana University. That was mm. undergrad, alma mater, mm -hmm. donated there. And so uh, what I've been doing over the past few years is gradually building up um, a, uh, a, a stockpile of essentially every record that's contained in the archives, um, having them all uh, photographed and duplicated and so on, um, because they didn't exist anywhere else except in these dusty old boxes that were put in an annex somewhere that nobody had ever even, you know, looked at. Um, so, uh, so, you know, as I was looking through these, it was, I kept having this, this feeling, you know, I would discover something very interesting and I would have to sort of like look around, you know, and see if, if any, is anybody watching me? Does, does anybody know, um, you know, what I've just discovered? All right, right. Um, so, uh, so it was a really, um, fun, yeah, experience. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm continuing doing a lot of this archival work, because there's just no telling what you can discover when you when you turn the next page. So do you, do you mean you have to like find some contact over there and you pay them to go art photocopy or like you physically have to keep making trips to this place? Oh, uh, in, the, in this particular case, um, mm. I hired a, uh, a research assistant to do it. Yeah. Okay. You, you, it, it took about two years to to get all of the records from the thing so and you know i didn't have two years to, to spend right right okay uh, so dumb question bumbavik was writing in english to fetter no so bumbavik was fluent or no no this is trans no bumbavik didn't really speak much english he seems to have been able to read it uh -huh. but uh but all of his works um even the ones that were eventually published in english um during his lifetime those were translated um, so in this case, he was speaking German. Now, Fetter spoke German. Ah, he had okay. been, uh, he had been trained. He received his PhD from a German university, um, the University of Hall, um, and had actually been trained by the German Historical School uh, when he was a graduate student. Um, so listeners might know of the German Historical School. They were sort of like the arch rivals of the Austrians in a sense mm -hmm. in the early days. Uh, and Fetter actually received his training from them. Um, and it was only uh, as he was a graduate student and then in the uh, early years of his career that he really, um, I won't say rejected, um, but um, or at least rejected the, uh, the German historical view on economic theory because many of the German historians had been quite skeptical of the idea of economic theory. Uh, Fetter rejected that and fully embraced 
the Austrian approach, um, as well as its own specific theories of value and price and distribution. Um, so in that sense, he, he distinctly parted ways with the German historical school, despite the fact that he did do some kind of sort of historical, empirical kind of research, especially mm-hmm. in his career. And that's interesting because one might have thought that, like, if you know, if the big, well, one of the big contrasts between the German historical school and the Mangarian tradition is the the possibility of economic theory or economic law, let's call it. And so obviously these are nuanced thinkers and everything, but it would, loosely speaking, the German historical school was like, well, you know, it's, everything is so complicated. There's so many different moving parts and what may have been true about, you know, if you want to know why did price controls have the effect they did in ancient Rome, it's not because, oh, you can look at economic principles and apply them back then because, you know, their culture was different, the legal structure was, you know, everything. Whereas the Mangarian tradition is like, no, there's there's the law of cause and effect and within the realm of market phenomena, you know, we can come up with things that are true. Not Just like a physicist, you know, if somebody said, oh, the way Alexander the Great won that battle was because his scientist had invented a perpetual motion machine, modern physicists would know that's impossible. That's not what happened. I don't care if you put that in his diary, that's wrong. And so likewise, if somebody from ancient Rome, you know, said, oh, we, we put in price controls and that helped, but then some other thing like a modern economist would say, no, that's wrong. So my, what I'm coming to is one might've thought someone who's a, a, a member of the American psychological school wouldn't think there were laws of economics. Cause like, you know, that sounds like, oh, everything's open-ended, man. It's all in your mind. There's no rules. But actually he did think there were rules, even though economic phenomena are driven by subjective mental motivations. Yeah, that's exactly correct. He did have a very uh, strong, positive view of economic theory. Uh, He was mainly writing at a, you know, before, for example, people like Mises would introduce um, or or popularize terms like praxeology and so mm-hmm. um, so he those weren't terms that he used but if you look at his writings on economic theory and uh, some of his writings on method and history of economics and so on it becomes very clear that he did have this very uh, positive view of theory and did embrace a, a version of theorizing that was essentially Austrian you know there mm-hmm. are these universal principles um, that always apply and you know and we can use them to understand um, historical events for instance Mm -hmm. yep and i should mention too i didn't realize this until i had read um hoppe's essay on what the heck is it it's got the word method in it now i'm blanking on the exact title but it was where he went it's not like oh economists were doing one thing and then this cranky guy mises came along in 1902 and said, hey, everyone, let's do praxeology. And no, that the, the way many economists, like in the leading tradition, especially like through the French tradition, like they, Mises thought he was just in the beginning summarizing or distilling down, this is what good economics is. And then it was only later that he realized, oh, wait a minute, a lot of my colleagues don't agree with this. And, and Hoppe does a good job of, of quoting from like J.B. Say and people like that to show that it's, this the praxeological approach is not some quirky Austrian thing that used to be like how a lot of economists conceived of what they were doing, and that you know the the modern idea of oh no you got to come up with a testable proposition that has empirical you know that that that's more economists being influenced by what they thought the natural sciences were doing even though the quote scientific method the way it's taught in fifth grade strictly speaking isn't even quite accurate when it comes to physics or chemistry let alone is it true in economics. Yeah, yeah. The, the Austrians had all kinds of, of predecessors in terms of their method. Again, you know, the terminology was obviously different, um, especially across nations and languages and so on. But the results, you know, the, the practical way that economics was conducted, um, in that sense, the Austrians had many people who anticipated them, including people, by the way, uh, for instance, some people amongst the, the general British classical economic tradition. Mm-hmm. In other words, people who whose actual economic theory uh, clashed in in sharp, uh, uh, you know, in, in many respects with with what the Austrians were doing. Um, so, you know, that's I think is is a good indication that um, there was this sort of robust tradition in Austrian style method um, that it, that w- that it had existed a long time before you know Karl Menger came along. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why don't we transition then? So, uh, when I was looking at your CV, another recent popular topic seems to be 
Chinese military history. So can you just first explain, like, how did you even get into that topic? And then maybe we'll get into some of the specifics of how does that intersect with an Austrian economics research agenda? Sure, sure. So I've published a, a few papers on this topic. And really, it, again, this actually, now that I think about it, this also started, I think, way back when I was in high school. Uh, and then, and maybe now, I don't know, um, it was sort of like a cliche that, um, you know, people would take an interest in things like military history. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a, um, I, I, I want acquaintance who calls it uh, dad history, um, you know, the, the sort of popular military classics and the classics of military strategy and so on. So I had uh, early on read and really enjoyed uh, the, uh, the the text known as Art of War by, by Sun Tzu. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you know, it's a classic. It's by far the best known of all the Chinese military works. Uh, and I thought it was really fascinating when I was young. And but I just sort of read it, put it down, said, you know, oh well, that that's great. Um, and then just randomly on a plane a few years later. And you've never lost a war since you read that. I just want to point out. That's correct. I yeah. haven't. I haven't. So good point. <laughs> um, but anyway, a few years later, I was on a plane. Uh, this was when I was in graduate school, and uh, just on a whim, picked it up again, and was kind of astounded by how economic its focus was, mm -hmm. even, you know, sort of in translation and through interpretations and so on. Uh, I was really struck by how many specifically economic points were made and how what today we would recognize, at least as economic issues, are at the foundation of so much of strategic theory, of military strategic theory. So at that point, I started branching out and reading much more widely in a lot of these different Chinese uh, classics, um, as well as, you know, more modern European works and so on, mm -hmm. and um, just became kind of captivated with this sort of the, the methods that they use uh, and the the worldview, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, of a lot of this strategic thinking and, um, again, how intertwined it was with what today we would call economic theorizing. And can you can you give an example? Because as I think it's one thing, is it like, oh, he was thinking, you know, using marginal analysis or do you mean more like, oh, he realized if people aren't growing enough crops, then eventually the supply chain breaks down and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, it, it's a little bit of both, right? Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, um, a lot of these texts will talk a lot about the importance of allowing sufficient economic growth um, so that there's, you know, so that there's there are resources available that you can use in things like war making, right? Mm. Um, by the way, just as a side note, I should really clarify, just in case anybody has any questions about this, um, that we're not talking about sort of proto-libertarian scholars who are opposing the warfare state or something like that. Right. Um, we're talking about people who um, whose purpose is to figure out how to um, effectively serve a state, essentially, how to mm. most effectively make war, right? Um, and this it connects to a bigger point about economics that I'll uh, hopefully make in a second. Um, so in any case, there's there are a lot of these ideas, um, you know, taxes should be relatively light because people need to be able to eat um, if you want them to produce um, and if you want to be able to field a large infantry-based army, right? Mm -hmm. So basic economic insights like that, but also many more specific things like what today we call incentives, right? And agency problems and things like this. Um, how do you properly motivate people? Um, and um, also, how do you motivate people um, to sort of do their best? How do you organize people uh, in a military context? Um, when uh, when you might not be, be able to observe people's behavior perfectly well. Um, so this is getting at sort of modern agency, moral hazard type problems and things like that. So my point is that the ancients were well aware of these kinds of problems. They had a completely different terminology for discussing mm -hmm. them, but they were aware that these problems existed and they were trying to solve them, you know, a couple of millennia before economists would come along and, you know, formalize them and begin talking about agency theory and things like that. So they didn't call it a prisoner's dilemma or market failure? No, no, they, <laughs> that wasn't, uh, that wasn't their, their, their terminology. They were striving for a Pareto optimal outcome. Um, yeah, I remember because I worked for Arthur Laffer briefly and, one of the papers he his you know firm put out while I was there, he was looking at the historical antecedents to you know what's now called the Laffer curve, 
and you know, he went back to, oh yeah, in the twenties with, you know, Harding and Woodrow or no, I'm not Woodrow, Calvin Coolidge and their tax cuts and, you know, Andrew Mellon and whatever. And then that's obviously predecessor. But then, yeah, I think the earliest they went back, I don't know if it was from the art of war, but there were ancient, you know, Chinese scholars saying things that it was, it was the Laffer curve. Like that idea was clearly there thousands of years ago. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. And there's, there's a lot of these little insights and gems that you can find by looking through a lot of these, these ancient historical texts. Uh, and you don't even really need to add much interpretation, mm-hmm. them, as you say, um, because the principles are, are fully there on display. Um, so it's an interesting twist on the idea that, you know, there's there's just nothing new under the sun. Uh, you know, somebody's thought about it uh, before somewhere at some time. Okay, so for, let me just read from a particular one. So the title of this uh, 2017 papers, Military Strategy and Unproductive Entrepreneurship in Warring States, China. And then from the abstract, you ref- you say you apply your insights to the case of the military classics of China's warring states period. And warring and states have capital letters from 475 to 221 BCE. So can you just explain historically what that period is? And then what? How did, why does this interest a modern Austrian economist? Sure. So the Warring States period in China was what the, one of the periods of most significant change, I would say, uh, in China's history. Um, at the beginning of that period, uh, the Warring States period follows what's sometimes called the Spring and Autumn period, um, which was a period of great flourishing in terms of Chinese culture and philosophy and so on. Uh, and at the, after that is what's today called usually called the Warring States period, which was a lot more like uh, Renaissance Italy, in a way, where you had a large number of warring states, hence the name, in constant political competition with each other and constantly vying essentially to exterminate each other through an endless mm. series of wars. And at the end of this period uh, is the first unification of China, which in various ways ends up as has ended up lasting uh, uh, until today, until you know. Mm. The, the current day. So it was a very interesting period in Chinese history. And like Renaissance Italy, it was one of those times when, um, amongst other things, because of the constant conflict between states and constant attempts to, to dominate different, uh, um, different parts of the, of the country and centralize power and so on, one side effect of this was that there was a lot of uh, again, cultural development, a lot of invention and innovation in many different ways, in particular in the area of military strategy, which was sort of um, one of the um, the, the most uh, prominent um, and most sought after kinds of, of innovation uh, of that period. Right? Uh, if you look at Chinese history, by the way, you'll see that um, it's just absolutely full of all kinds of invention and innovation. So many uh, practical uh, ideas and tools and so on that we even that we use today um, can be traced back somewhere to, to ancient Chinese history. But the interesting thing for me when I was writing this paper that you mentioned was that a lot of times this innovative effort, um, this kind of entrepreneurial effort, wasn't put into bigger and better markets. It wasn't put into trying to serve consumers and increase people's welfare and so on. Instead, it was being channeled into areas like military strategy, right? So instead of building a better mousetrap, it's, you know, building a, uh, uh, building a better uh, bow, sword, uh, you know, stirrup, um, mm-hmm. these kinds of inventions. And the writings of the military classics in China are really great examples of this, I think, because they're stressing these very entrepreneurial ideas. You know, we need to grow, change, adapt to competition and so on. Uh, and they say them oftentimes in very entrepreneurial ways um, or even make references to markets as examples um, of, of ways these uh, things can be done. But they never made the leap and actually applied it to try and improve people's welfare. Instead, it was all channeled towards the warfare states of their days uh, and to political rulers uh, who tried to use the insights um, to gain an advantage over their opponents. So really what that paper that I wrote is all about is about the way that political institutions channel entrepreneurial behavior. Um, Entrepreneurship in its more abstract sense, isn't necessarily a good thing. 
right? You know, if entrepreneurship is just using good judgment in the face of uncertainty, well, there's all kinds of ways you can do that. You know, you can do that for good, you can do that for evil. And historically, it's very often been been done for evil. And this is a problem that uh, the economist uh, William Baumol, I don't know if he was ever one of your professors at, uh, at NYU, um, but uh, he had a, published a famous paper in 1990 called Entrepreneurship, Productive, Unproductive, and Destructive. And in that paper, he made a very similar argument and said that, you know, depending on what kind of institutions you have, you get a very different kinds of entrepreneurship. Sometimes it's the great beneficial market entrepreneurship that lifts people out of poverty and increases wealth. And sometimes it's the terrible, destructive political entrepreneurship um, that just involves essentially redistributing or destroying wealth. Mm-hmm. Now is the case um, for, uh, for ancient China in the Warring States period. Okay, great. Yes, to answer your question, um, yeah, Bommel was there at where you know when I went through, and he was my professor for. We had a like as part of the PhD program there, you had to take a. I think it was your third year. You took a course in how to write a paper, like you know how do you do a journal article, and so he was the. And and part of he said, well, why was he doing that? Why was he in charge of that? His CV was amazing. It had it listed like thirty books he had written, and then just had a throwaway line saying, and over. I want to say 1,000, maybe it was 500 peer-reviewed articles. Like he didn't even bother listing his, his journal publications. There's so many. Oh yeah, I'm William Baumel. Yes, uh, I was just reading a yeah. uh, sort of survey article about his work the other day. And I think it said over 500 articles and maybe 80 books. Yeah, it's, yeah. I don't remember what, but yeah. Instead, like for people who don't know, for listeners, normally an academic's CV stands for curriculum vita uh, list. It's, it's like your job resume or your, your resume, I should say. It lists your academic public, certainly in peer-reviewed journals. That's what you would list. Whereas with his, this guy's, yeah, he 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 had so many books. He just listed the books and didn't even bother putting the uh, the journal publications. Um, and so, is how much would you say, Matt? Is it because I know Deirdre McClowski, This is something in that train that, that we're, if we're trying to explain what is it about the West that allowed it to take off, you know, what you could call it the industrial revolution or, but what, why did that happen there? And, you know, and, a, and a, China is probably the biggest thing people bring up when they're trying to like really isolate the cause and effect and what was different because as you said, you know, they bring up, oh yeah, in China, you know, they had fireworks and stuff, but they didn't develop, you know, the, the, why was it the Europeans had, were equipped with guns, you know, whereas the Chinese, like they knew about that technology and for, Maybe that's throwing a fly in the ointment with the, with guns, but in general, I know one of the things is to say that oh, for whatever reason in the West in Western Europe, eventually bourgeois mercantile culture became not just tolerable, but that was actually oh yeah, if your kid grew up to be a a successful importer exporter like George Costanza, that was fine. Whereas in like China, like, no, you wanted to go serve in the emperor's court or something like that, you know, to, to be a business person would, would be like an embarrassment to the family. Is, is that, first of all, is that stereotype true? And then do you think that really is a big part of the explanation? Yes. So in general, that is true. Um, and in fact, even people like William Baumol in his article mm-hmm. on this mentioned that case. Um, and in my article, I tried to push it even further back in history. Uh, but it is generally true that throughout most of Chinese history, being a member of the merchant class was something that was looked down upon. Um, and very often, and I list some examples of this in my paper, uh, merchants were not just taxed more, um, but they could be forbidden from riding horses or wearing silk um, or you know, in various ways even uh, degraded in this way, um, not just having their their wealth taken away more, uh, but being denied certain social standing and so on. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that in this kind of environment, there's not a great incentive to be a market entrepreneur. Right? Um, so this is one part of the bigger explanation. Now, with all of these things about, you know, why was there an industrial revolution in the West and not anywhere else and so on, these kinds of things, they really do resist simple explanations, you know, Mm -hmm. one cause. So I I don't want to push this too much and say that this was the only explanation because there weren't, there were others as well. Uh, But it is one that I think is, has been very important throughout a lot of of Chinese history um, because it's, it's only been recently um, and even then to a limited extent that um, the idea of 
being an entrepreneur, being a member of sort of the, the business class um, has started to take on a lot greater significance socially in uh, in China. Um, and, you know, today, obviously, even though it's freer than it was, it's still obviously a very restricted market economy. Um, and there are a lot of very close ties between business and the state in contemporary China. So even today, it's not nearly as um, as, as positive um, as it probably should be. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, if you don't mind, since you obviously know the theory and ideal environment for a, a free society based on proper, private property rights, and you know a bunch about Chinese history, can, can you comment on that? Like nowadays, do, do you view it? Because I've, I've heard two different perspectives from people who are fans of the free market and who do business in China in one perspective, and this was like from 10 years ago, so I don't know if, if they would have updated their views, but as of 10 years ago, I had people who would swear up and down that, oh no, it's, it's run by communists. Like that's, that's you know, don't, don't kid yourself. They have some limited freedoms for technical reasons or whatever, but no, it's a bunch of commies. And then someone else like, no, it's a market economy. They know, they, you know they, they've seen the light and they're, they're allowing all sorts of stuff and just you wait and they keep doing free trade deals and, da, 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 and giving more freedom for local farms and agriculture and blah, blah, blah. So do you have a take on that one way or the other? Yeah, my own understanding is that it's it's essentially in between, right? Um, and that the smaller scale you are, uh, I think the the more freedom you have in the system. Um, it's only I think as as businesses begin to scale up and start doing business internationally, for example, and so on, that you start to really need um, or be subjected to uh, those ties to. The Chinese government, essentially. Um, so when you look at the the largest companies, um, I think they almost always have very strong relationships with mm-hmm. government in, in one way or another. Um, but nevertheless, you know, on the the smaller, more local scale, um, I think there there is more freedom. Um, although I suspect that's mainly just because um, that type of business is a lot less threatening. Um, to the authorities than right. than the larger businesses are. Okay. Um, let's see. What else do I want to ask you here? So you are you've been living in the UK for a while now. Yeah, I've been here about uh, seven years. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, okay. So like 2014 ish is when you. That's correct. Yeah, I moved here in the summer of 2014. Okay, so that was pre-Trump. Correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. So. Uh, we moved here, I would say, one of the most interesting periods in recent UK history because we moved here right after the failed Scottish referendum, but mm-hmm. before Brexit right, and before Trump and before various royal marriages and children and other you know, political goings on here. Right, right. It's been an interesting seven years, let me put it that way. Well, so that's what I wanted to ask you about is so you you know growing up in the United States and then and you know being very keyed into political issues and things and then going over there and then seeing the United States from afar in what so I'm just saying like from my perspective I I sometimes you know my wife and I talk about how we would like to travel you know abroad more or just to get out of this bubble because we we feel like the United States has gone insane and we're just wondering does it look that way to the rest of the world or is it the whole West has gone insane. Uh, well, in a way, both. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because, uh, I mean, people's impression of the United States, at least in the UK, uh, does tend to be quite negative. Mm-hmm. Sure, it doesn't stop the Brits from going to the United States on all their vacations. But politically, at least, I think mm-hmm. um, a lot of uh, British people have a low opinion of the United States um, and tend to think of it in sometimes very stereotypical terms, you know, the country of uh, fat gun-toting idiots mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, I don't want to be too harsh uh, on, the, on the Brits, but I've many, many times run into that, uh, that, that kind of attitude. And uh, Trump certainly didn't help uh, mm. anything in that regard. Um, so, you know, it's strange. And it, But one of the weirder things I think about it is that um, in some ways – the uh, um, the political environment in the UK with regard to the US, I think in some ways it might even be crazier than it is in the US. 
um, because people's reactions to everything that was going on in the last four or five years, in, if anything, here in the UK, it, it almost seems to me at least like the reactions were harsher and more critical than they were in the US. Uh, maybe that's just because I'm not, I haven't been in the US. And so mm-hmm. I'm seeing it firsthand. I was just, you know, getting it through uh, uh, the media and social media and so on. Uh, but that at least was my impression was that um, sometimes the, um, the, uh, the real sort of hatred and loathing for people like Trump and so on uh, was a lot more um, um, uh, vicious over here than it was even in the U.S., um, or certainly just as vicious. So that to me has been a very interesting mm-hmm. thing um, to watch uh, unfold. Well, if I if I could just g- give a little more context though to what I was so I, so yes, obviously there's this you know thing of like oh yeah you cowboy like with, with George W. Bush I know like a lot of Europeans thought, oh yeah, you cowboy Americans with, you know, going around just shooting up the saloon kind of thing, you idiots, um, you know, rednecks with your guns and your pickup trucks, but, and, and, you know, believing in, you know, not believing in evolution, that kind of stuff. But more recently, I'm so, because even the, uh, like I watch, you know, my wife and I, we like news or, or like sort of political commentary from either Australia or the UK, or like, I don't know if, if you're familiar with Douglas Murray, Man, um, but you know he's a he's a British author and he's really into like the identity politics stuff. He, me like as a as a critic of it and like diagnosing it and saying whoa this is bad you know. And typically it, it was sort of interesting to see that, like they'll say things along the lines of oh yeah it's getting bad here in Britain but fortunately it's not as bad as it is in the U.S. right now like with some of this you know anti-white blah 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 stuff. And so that's that's partly um, and I know I was when I went, uh, my wife and I went over for a a conference in Vienna a few years ago and we were, we had dinner with a guy who now lives in Switzerland, but he could grown up in the U S and we were telling him that, oh yeah, there's gender neutral bathrooms and stuff. And like, he just didn't believe us. Like he thought, oh, come on. That's really like, like we're in San Francisco and we're like, no, all over the place. What are you talking about? Like it's, so I'm just, that's partly what I'm getting at is that I think um, maybe some Americans don't realize how far our culture has moved because we normally tend to think of like, oh yeah, stuff's crazy in France or Canada, but, and I'm I'm saying on some of these issues, actually other people around the world look at the US with alarm, like, wow, it's really bad there. I hope the Americans don't export that crazy trend to our country. Yeah, again, it's, it's a really difficult one because in some ways things seem better and more reasonable and in other ways, uh, it's a very progressive culture in the UK mm. and I think has substantially moved in that direction, particularly in the last few years. Uh, I'm really not an expert on this, so I, I can't uh, speak, you know, was. Oh, I just mean you you being there and just like how do you know, watching the read, seeing the paper, just how people are talking or being at your school. Like, is it, you know, do you get like do your emails like does your school people do people announce their pronouns and stuff in their in their work correspondence? Sure, sure, yeah. So okay. we have plenty of that. Um, okay, you have the sort of um, let's the, the standard kind of paraphernalia of mm. um, a general leftward cultural shift that seems to have been going on for the past few years. So there's there's all there's certainly that sort of thing, um, which is uh, is is quite common, and um, you'll see other examples of it uh, as well in other different kinds of areas. Um, but um, over and, and so overall, I would say that the U, my impression is that the UK is, is much more um, progressive in, on a lot of these issues mm-hmm. than the US is, because at least I at least and again, this is just my impression, but I think that in the US, um, even if the non progressive part of society is outnumbered, there does seem to be some kind of non-progressive group that's holding strong and that doesn't seem likely to change its views anytime soon. Mm. That doesn't seem to be the case so much in the UK. Um, that contingent of society seems to be shrinking all the time. Um, uh, and particularly as the people who hold those kind of beliefs get older um, and are replaced in the population by younger people who uh, tend to have overwhelmingly uh, progressive views. Okay. Um can do what's going on? And I don't mean to. If you don't want to talk about this, we can take it out. But <laughs> what's with with Brexit? Is that? Can you just talk about you know like your your observations with with that and like you know wh- 
how did people, um, because the way it was reported on over here, it was like this great shock and wow, we didn't realize how benighted and racist and stupid so many people, voters were. And, you know, and if we just need to go educate them again because they clearly voted the wrong way. They don't, they didn't know what they were doing. Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, as you point out, there was this very standard reaction that we've seen so many times over the past few years where the election doesn't go the way that the people in charge think it's going to go. Uh, and so everyone does a lot of soul searching and and start mm. talking about, uh, uh, you know, democracy and so on um, and, and being a lot more critical, right, because they love democracy until it gives them results they don't like. Right. Uh, so there was absolutely that aspect of it um, when it came to the Brexit vote. But it was, I mean, it was a shock. People did not expect it uh, to go the way that it did. And in fact, I, I'm certain that if they had known, they wouldn't have ever given people the opportunity. Right. They gave them the vote basically just to say, okay, look, we're going to let you vote on this you're going you're gonna to vote against leaving the European Union, and then that'll be that. And then forevermore, we're going to be able to say, we gave you a chance, and you said... Right. The people have spoken. And then they said yes, right? Yeah. By a slim margin, that's definitely true, um, but uh, by enough to make a difference. So at that point, uh, we then got four or five years of uh, constant, uh, some, some of the, the worst... Uh, darkest predictions about the, the, the economic and social future of the UK um, they've ever heard um, about how it was all going to be a disaster. And basically we would all resort to cannibalism within two weeks of mm -hmm. the European Union. Um, obviously that hasn't happened. Um, although, which is not to say that the process has been seamless or something like that, because uh, the, the deal that came out of it was certainly not ideal and, and certainly from any kind of libertarian perspective um, was was certainly not ideal. And in any case, it's being administered and enforced by the central government. So there's only so much you can expect, um, even if the deal had been good. Mm -hmm. So so again, I, I don't want to sort of lionize Brexit and pretend like it was you know just the, the greatest thing that ever happened in UK history, um, because it certainly didn't. Uh, but the lesson there, I think, is is about the surprise of the vote is really just about how there's been, you know, for the last decade, especially a real shift that's been underway around in all kinds of different countries around the world, a real realignment of people's political views where there are no longer the standard left and right positions on many issues that there used to be. Um, it's no longer the case that, uh, for instance, the question of, of Brexit, say, um, would be only one of right-wing people wanting to leave and left-wing people wanting to stay. Um, that was not what we saw um, looking at the, the demographics of the votes. It's been a lot more complicated than that uh, for most people. And you can see this here in the UK, for instance, with the uh, in the last few years, there's been a huge disorganization and lack of focus amongst, for instance, the Labour Party. Uh, about Brexit. And um, it's, it's really a running joke at this point that uh, the Labour Party doesn't even have a position on Brexit, what they wanted to do, uh, whether they thought it was a good idea um, or how they wanted to manage it or anything like that. And, you know, Labour is based, you know, the uh, UK equivalent of, let's say, the Democratic Party. It's the large mm -hmm. left-wing party generally. Uh, but its confusion and total disarray with regard to, to Brexit, I think, has been a, a good example of how a lot of these issues that used to seem really cut and dried in terms of political allegiances are, are no longer so obvious. And you see it in all kinds of other areas as well, too. For instance, with the Trump phenomenon, you know, at least on paper, the right and the Republican Party uh, are supposed to be in favor of free markets and free trade. And, mm -hmm. and yet, as soon as Trump came along, all of that just went out the window right away um, and, you know, and brought with it, you know, instead a new mercantilism, a new nationalism and so on. So, you know, it's it's a weird time in politics all over the world, I would. Right. And yeah. And what was funny too, with that stuff was that the democratic left in the United States political arena also flipped in reaction to Trump, where all of a sudden Democrats were big free traders. Like they all of a sudden, you know, oh yeah, you know, who could possibly doubt the wisdom of David Ricardo? 
you know, and th that's not how they were talking two weeks before Trump got elected. Then it was all about, oh, yeah, these free trade deals are, you know, killing the American worker and blah, blah, blah. Then once Trump started saying that, now all of a sudden it was, how can he reject Econ 101? This guy's a moron. So, and, and, I, and that, I saw that mapping too on the Brexit controversy. A lot of, so, you know, like Rothbardian types were very much for it just because, hey, stick it to the system. We don't want these globalist elites, you know, micromanaging stuff and running roughshod over national sovereignty. Whereas more, I'm obviously brushing with a broad stroke here, but more like DC-based libertarian types were more about, well, no, I mean, if we had these organizations, you know, we could keep low tariffs and stuff like that and have right, uh, synchronized regulations. Whereas with Brexit, who knows what's going to happen? We might get higher, you know, tariff barriers and stuff. So it was... Like you, you just you know, so both of them coming from the perspective of limited government, classical liberalism, but different, you know, things they were stressing in terms of and having wildly different reactions to the Brexit, either one with horror and oh no, the the villagers are running around with pitchforks, or yeah, the people finally stuck it to the elites. This is great. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, most people's views on this, as far as I can tell, were really sort of made up in advance. Um, mm -hmm. It's like most people just had a very idealized version of Brexit one way or another. Either you just decided in advance that, you know, this is the path of of uh, freedom and individual liberty against and against the tyranny of the EU, or it's, uh, you know, it's just going to result in the, the decomposition of Europe and we're going to go back to, you know, warring city-states or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it didn't really seem like anybody was actually interested in figuring it out because the truth is that it's not a particularly obvious issue um, because there's trade-offs across many, many, many different margins in terms of, mm. you know, who's getting power, whether power is going to grow, and if so, where, and so on. So um, I, I don't pretend, again, look, I'm not an expert, right? So I don't want to say um, uh, too much, but um, I, I will say that it was a lot more complicated than I think most libertarians gave it credit for. Okay. Uh, what, for the last thing I wanted to ask you, this is sort of an unfair question. You can answer it in whatever detail you want. Um, just g given your background, you know, and then your vantage point, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts of like, what do you think the next 10 years is going to be like? So here, the, the pill terminology from the matrix is really big, you know, like, oh, are you, you know, first it was just, are you red pilled? What's the other, is it blue? Is the blue pill what the... I can never remember which yeah. is a good one. Yeah, I think in the actual movie, it was a red pill and a blue pill, I believe. Yeah. And then, and now the ones are is like white versus black. So if you're black pilled, you're very pessimistic. Oh, it's hopeless. The lizard people have won. What's the point? Whereas white pilled is, oh, no, no, look at all these signs. They can't stop us because now, you know, Dave Smith is reaching this many people. So uh, I'm just curious, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, let's just say the next 10 years. And, you, you know, obviously... We, you don't want to be, throw something out like Krugman with his facts. Sure, comment, sure. But. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I, I won't make that mistake. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'll tell you that I tend to be a kind of inveterate pessimist. Okay. For most of these things. Um, again, I can't claim to have any scientific basis for this, but um, it, it does seem to me that there are a lot of really sort of troubling trends that I, and I, I can't imagine they're going to, to go away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Whether you want to look at, you know, impending monetary and fiscal problems uh, or um, civil rights problems, freedom of speech, and so on, I don't see a great deal of, of cause for optimism on a lot of those margins, unfortunately, uh, which isn't to say that I something might change and I, I might, you know, I would love to be proved wrong about this. But at the moment, at least, I don't quite see how those are going to, to get better in the, in the near future. The good news is that there is going to be progress on some other margins. Um, when you look at you know, the progress that's been made, for instance, on things like drug legalization, right? Sure, it's just one issue, but it is an important one, and it does have mm. a big impact on you know, human life and welfare. And it does seem to be one where there's a lot of steady progress being made um, in terms of things like marijuana legalization or even medical marijuana, you know, even halfway measures and things like that. These kinds of things are becoming far more widespread, and it seems like it's going to be quite difficult to arrest that trend. Um, so that, at least, I think, you know, is, is a cause for optimism. Um, and, of course, there are other things as well. You know, um, we, you know, we are lucky, at least at the moment, to um, uh, 
it's just to still, you know, wealth creation still exists mm-hmm. in our countries. You know, um, we haven't been uh, uh, taxed or inflated out of existence yet. Um, so that's something good. And, you know, as long as, you know, uh, where there's life, there's hope. And where there's uh, economic life, um, there's economic hope. So in other words, anywhere where there's a little bit of room for entrepreneurs to do what they do, uh, create wealth and so on, you know, there's hope there, right? So in that sense, we will make progress. Um, and, you know, we will, there will be new technological innovations that are, will increase our standards of living and so on um, right through the, the next 10 years. And um, this kind of thing, you know, is that's a good thing. You know, that's something that we can at least look forward to, um, even if it looks a little more bleak on some of these other Mm-hmm. margins as well. So anyway, this is my long, overly complicated way of saying, like all economists do, well, it kind of depends. Right. On the one hand, this, but on the other hand, yep. Good. Very well put then. All right. Well, that's a good uh, note to wrap up on, I think. So folks, my guest has been Matt McCaffrey. For links to the stuff we talked about, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 205. Matt, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.